0: Hey team, welcome to episode 61 of Transition Talk, where we talk about dental transitions and how to navigate the sometimes messy path to practice ownership. So in this episode, we have a special treat. Today, we have a special guest trainer and coach, Jill Allen, is joining us. She founded Jill Allen & Associates, a practice management group that focuses in on the practical practice management techniques, helping both pediatric and orthodontic owners reach their maximum potential. Love that. So Jill and her team work with startups, and practice owners in the early years of ownership. And then they also work with owners who are preparing. So kind of that tail end, very similar to NDP. So Jill, welcome to Transition Talk.
1: Thank you, Chrissy. So excited to be a part of this talk. And I'm just really excited to be here and to be talking about something I love and that's startups and transitions.
0: I love it. So yeah, we have worked with you. Charles has worked with you for a long time and has been in your circle. And the last few years I have gotten to know you and your work and you guys are very similar to us. Like I said, you guys work with the newbies and the ones who are kind of exiting or getting ready to exit ownership. So I've talked about my favorite thing about working with both sides of the coin on here. What's your favorite thing about those two groups?
1: You know, when I got into this, you know, I really felt like, you know, I just had a real passion for working with first the startups and just being able to help doctors take their dream and kind of bring it to fruition. And there's just so much that goes into that. And, you know, where they are coming from to where they're going. And then likewise, it's also super exciting to be able and working with our doctors who are going to be transitioning out at a point where they have been able to have their dream and, you know, are now looking at moving on to that next chapter in their life and just really helping them have a good transition out, you know, helping them get their practice ready to go so that things are, you know, going to be just really set for them when they make that move to just move on. And I think the best thing about both groups is they're both willing to listen and learn. I think that's always, you know, really fun. I love being kind of down in the trenches helping docs and their teams sort things out and, you know, when I work with startups or transition doctors, we're definitely <laughs> we're definitely right there.
0: (laughs) Yep, absolutely. And I think it's so you know, I think it gives you perspective on the other side as well by working with kind of the younger guys who are coming in. And then you have the perspective to get the more established docs who are kind of probably 30 years from remembering what it was like to kind of be that new person coming in. So I think that's always fun to kind of navigate that too. Awesome. Okay, so I'm going to jump into some of the big questions that I know we both get from both buyers and sellers that so we're going to kind of tackle each of those. And I know that your wheelhouse is pediatric practices and orthodontic practices, but I honestly think all of these questions kind of can probably be helpful for almost anyone who's kind of in one of these shoes. So let's start with our buyer listeners. Question number one that we get is, and this is kind of always comes in, especially in our world, if I have a buyer client who we've done all our diligence, now kind of reality is setting in that they're going to be an owner. And they're one of the questions they always have is like, what's the most like difficult thing I'm going to face in my first year of ownership? Or what do I need to be prepared for that I don't know right now before I kind of take this leap? So kind of what would
1: your perspective be on? that sure i think this is such a great question and i think my answer is going to be something that a lot of doctors probably don't recognize up front as probably one of the biggest things they're going to face And I think that is them coming in as a new owner and just what they're going to face with the existing team. And I think probably one of the hardest things, I mean, you would think it would be finances or you know meeting the patients and all of that, but really it's how do you transition from a team that has been sold out to, um, and more than likely the dream team of a previous doctor to now you're a new doctor coming in and how do you get them sold out for you and, or do you have a team that is going to be willing to move forward with you because you're going to take this practice for the next 20 years and they've potentially been pretty comfortable with where they're at and now we're going to ask them to change systems and to you know maybe increase what we're doing in a practice so I really think the hardest thing is learning to navigate in that first year the team and I always warn every doctor that I work with you have to be prepared for team turnover and in most cases the team that you have at the end of the year may not be the team you started with at the beginning.
0: Yeah. And we had a conversation with Catherine as belt about the hard communications and things you have to do there. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's so true. I always find it interesting when someone's talking about owning a practice, they do tend to focus on those more tangible things, the financial piece. And like, we'll talk about this next, but like insurance companies, and what do I want to do and in network, but like dealing with people I've said it a million times on this podcast, like humans are so hard and you are coming into something where there has been a set relationship and there's a loyalty to that seller and there should be, right? We want there to be that loyalty to the leader of the office, but then kind of inserting yourself as the new leader. (laughs) And what does that look like? It is challenging. And I think there's clearly so many resources and just being really thoughtful about that. And I think Sometimes just knowing that that's going to be a challenge is half the battle. Because if you come in there thinking it's going to be easy, I think that's a little bit of a shell shock and it brings you back like, oh, this was not expected. But I think if you can plan for that, you think out through that introduction in those first few months and what you're asking to change because, and I'm sure you see this too, buyers come in with a lot of ideas and a lot of plans and a lot of things going to change but what are the immediate changes? Like how quickly if I'm buying and acquiring a practice versus a startup, right? I'm acquiring a practice. How long do you say wait to make changes or do you?
1: I think unless it's a major something that we just have to deal with, I would say give it a good six months. You know, get in there, see what's happening, look at the systems, just watch. And I think by about month six is when you can start deciding to make those changes in, you know, whatever it may be. But there is just so much going on in that first six months with you coming in as the new doctor, you know, going back to the team, you know, you may have them all rehired on and you're trying to decide if you like them and they like you. And, you know, just so I think it's best to kind of keep things status quo as much as you can. And then at about month six, definitely by a year in, you should be changing things, but my opinion would be about month six which I don't know if that aligns with what you say, but that's that's usually where I'm at. Yeah,
0: More sooner than three months, right? You need at least to like get yourself Learn who your people are, develop a circle of trust. But, like, how soon does your team come in? Like, when would you and your team come in if, let's say, I'm an acquiring a practice and I know there are process issues, right? Like, I know there's efficiencies we can gain, I know there's things we can do, but I also don't want to make those changes. Like, when is a good time for a buyer to say, Hey, I know there are problems, I want to need someone to help me but I don't want to necessarily rock the boat. Like when would they reach out to you? Kind of what would that look like so that you're not kind of infringing too early?
1: Sure. We almost have two different type of doctors that we work with when we're in this acquisition. And we have the ones that before they even purchase the practice, they want our advice because there's just a lot that's going on. And even though I'm saying we should wait for major things to change we know there are things that we have to work with. And so a lot of times we're actually working with those doctors, maybe even a month prior to the actual purchase where we're talking about, okay, what's going to happen with the money when the practice happens and the day comes where you own that practice, where do the checks get deposited? You know, do you have your new ACH, your, your merchant services set up? Is it coming into your bank account? Is it still coming into the previous doctor's account? So there are some doctors that want help right from the beginning to make sure that we've got the con contracts or, you know, the forms are going to have the right doctor's name on them right from the beginning. And especially if potentially the senior doc is not going to be in the practice anymore. Um, There's a whole nother dynamic there on how long the senior doc stays, which I know we'll talk about in a little bit probably. So we've got that group where I say, if you, you know, if you feel like there's a lot going on there about a month prior, otherwise, usually my docs are talking with me and saying, okay, I bought the practice. And I'm usually saying at about month three to six is, again, when we're coming in, we like to actually come out to the practice on our first visit, really look, evaluate where everything is at. And then we kind of come up with our game plan for the rest of the year and what we're going to be working on to continue to move things along.
0: Awesome. So it almost sounds like you could start as more of like an operational diligence, kind of actually getting things set up right from the start, yes. turn into more of the practice management kind of process initiation, right? So your staff isn't seeing you initially as I'm coming in to change things, but I'm helping you get set up. I'm helping you kind of make sure everything's going. Yes.
1: Okay. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, as I alluded to, sometimes team members say, oh, my senior doc's leaving, I'm out of here too. And, you know, now all of a sudden we have a financial coordinator. Let's talk about an orthodontic office, a financial coordinator that has been there forever new docs coming in and they're like, I don't have anybody that's going to do financial. So sometimes we have to be able to help jump in, get somebody training, get somebody in there right away, just because of what is just naturally going to happen with that transition between doctors and teams. That's awesome.
0: Okay. So another question we get We figure out what the price and we want to do this practice. And it happens when I have a fee for service practice, or it happens when I have a practice that is in a bunch of different networks, right? My seller is part of all of these networks. Do I need to do that? What should I do? Or their fee for service, and I feel like they're missing out on a big chunk of what this could be maybe because of, of a local employer. And should I get credentialed, right? We get asked that question all the time. And that's a hard question for us to answer because There's a lot of analysis that needs to happen there, right? So what is your answer when you have someone who says, like, should I be in network or out of network? And how do I even assess what the benefit or con
1: would be for me? Sure. So I think the first thing you have to think about with this acquisition is, is this a practice that's already a thriving practice? Or is this a practice that we need to grow? And we all know there can be two different types of acquisitions, right? You could step into a, you know, be purchasing a, you know, million and a half, $2 million practice, and it is just clicking along. And, you know, the question, you know, that I would be saying is, you know, definitely with the insurance, yeah, maybe you do, maybe you don't. Let's evaluate what has made this such a successful practice and really evaluate if we need to follow suit with what the previous stock was doing. Now, if it's an acquisition where we feel like we've got growth, that we need to have happen, which I would say is usually more of the case (laughs) than I think we have to think about. And I'm always telling my docs who are doing the acquisitions, you have to think of this like a startup. So what do we need to do to breathe life into this practice and move it along? What was the brand recognition like with the previous doctor? What's it going to be like with you? Insurance companies, though we do take a hit, sometimes being a network, it also gives us another opportunity to have our name out there on the web with these other, you know, plans or if a doc has never been in network, you know, they may have had a smaller practice and it worked for them, but you trying to grow it, we may want that exposure of being out there with the insurance companies. So I do think there are a lot of factors that go into that. Kind of my rule of thumb is if you're trying to grow, it probably makes sense to at least be in the top five insurance groups out there. You can always stop taking insurances. But kind of my motto is when we're growing a practice, this is a little crude, but we want uh, butts in the chair and starts on the books. Right. <laughs> and how do we get that? We, You know, between all of our marketing efforts, sometimes it is accepting to be in network with some insurances taking a little bit of a hit and a write-off, but look at that as a marketing expense. Take a little bit of a hit and a write-off to get a patient in. You never know how many, you know, five other people they may talk to that love you that continue to help grow your practice. So I don't think there's a black and a white answer for the insurance aspect of that. Sometimes
0: they'll have clients who will say, Hey, this doctor is credentialed and in network with like everyone under the sun. There are 50 of them and it's going to take a long time. And so my advice is always like, start with the... You know, figure out which ones are the most utilized and the most kind of important, and start there. You know, maybe you decide that you don't want to be right with the kind of bottom rung insurance company or do that type of kind of assessment as well.
1: Absolutely. And that's assuming if, if we can pull the data out of the operating system, it's kind of like an investment portfolio, right? You know, that's how I, you know, advise doctors with, you know, staying in or out of network. If we can pull the data out of the operating system and you can see that you get a fair amount of patients from these insurances and you don't get any from these others, yeah, get rid of those umbrellas plans, those junk plans, they're probably not helping you. So again, I kind of go back to our top five and using the report's if they had a good reporting system where they were actually tracking, which I suggest every practice should be tracking. Every patient comes from somewhere and we should be tracking that. And hopefully if the previous practice was doing that, we are going to be able to see how many are coming in because of insurances. And that gives you a really good guideline on then who you should stay in network with, or maybe who you should drop.
0: Awesome. And does your team, and I'm sorry, I don't know this, but I'm going to learn something. Does your team with credentialing for, you know, new credentialing? Or do you guys utilize or say, hey, that's not because I know it can be extremely complex. So kind of what is your team's role in that? Or is it more of an assessment of like high level, here's where we are, here's what you need to do. And now Next step, kind of, that's more on you.
1: Yeah. So, we used to do insurance credentialing, and it's too big of a, <laughs> it's too much for myself and my team to do that anymore. So, we do not. We definitely advise and give a lot of instruction and are very, you know, we think a lot about what we should be doing with the advice that we're giving on to stay in network, to not stay in network, you know, all of that. We definitely help with you setting up your fees for credentialing, you know, and then that kind of trickles down into just the fees for the practice. This is a little sidetrack, but, you know, a lot of times the fees that the previous doctor had probably don't make a whole lot of sense for the new doc coming in. So there's, you know, they kind of go hand in hand to a point, but as far as the actual credentialing, we do not do that. There's a couple, you know, I'm going to say there's about four different companies out there that do a really good job and they each have different, you know, pros and cons to them. And so we try and align our docs with the right company that we think is going to work best for them. Everybody could do it themselves. And I always tell my doctors that if you've got time, energy, you can always credential yourselves. But I think that it's much easier to use a company and or if in the office that you got, you have a strong financial coordinator. We walk them through how do we transition you? How do we transition from the previous doctor to the new doctor's name if we're staying in network? And so we help on that end. We just don't do the physical credentialing. Yeah. I
0: always tell my clients that ask, I'm always like, you don't want me to right? Because like, as <laughs> are probably as strong as those who live and breathe that because it's so complex and changes. And there's just so many little intricacies that they can capitalize on to make the best of that credentialing. So good to know. Okay, so we at NDP are focused more on private practice acquisition. Clearly, there's all of the financial reasons to do that. But we definitely acknowledge and have clients who say, Hey, this just like, I can't find a practice, you know, all the ones that I have are, are frogs, and I can't find the prints. And then this, like competitive market or you know there just aren't any because it's super rural and I'm going to do a startup right so let's talk about that because I know I have people out there who kind of always want some tidbits on startups and I know that's definitely your wheelhouse as well so let's start with kind of like size and schedule right because I think that's always something that we'll ask about I'm going to ask kind of a two-fold question so kind of you can answer all at once how many employees does a typical startup have kind of in your experience in their first year right and then how many days a week, if I'm planning a startup, what does my schedule look like? How many days a week am I working? And then oftentimes meaning then how many days am I having to kind of work outside of my startup and as an associate for someone else to kind of supplement what I'm doing?
1: Sure. Yeah, that's a great question. I get asked that all the time also. So (laughs) when it comes to a startup and your first employees, especially, so I'm going to talk about ortho and then I'm going to talk about pedo for a minute. In an orthodontic practice, most of the time we can start with one employee that does everything. And the biggest thing I'm trying to tell my doctors is, this employee is not going to be probably your forever employee, but this employee is going to get us through our first year until we can really start to then grow and break out and get our core positions in place within the orthodontic practice. So usually most of my doctors are pretty comfortable working in the clinic on their own. We still always want to have somebody in the office when you're there, but we usually have that one employee. They learn everything except for usually the assisting aspect of it. Usually at about month six is when my doctors are usually bringing an assistant in at least to work on the days that they're there. But it's usually pretty difficult that we're going to find a really great assistant that can also do everything in front of the house. So ortho, usually one employee, we could be into one and a half by the end of our first year. If we're talking about a pediatric practice, That's a little bit different, especially depending upon how my docs are setting up their practice. Usually for sure, we need one person front of the house that does everything front of the house. And then we are usually starting also with an assistant right from the beginning in the back. And then again, how quickly we grow, we could be into two assistants fairly quickly, just depending upon how fast that practice grows. So ortho, pedo, just a tad bit differently. We can do it a little differently on the ortho side, but pedo usually to ortho one to one and a half by the end of the year. Now, when it comes to the amount of days, I feel like with both a pediatric and or a startup, I always try and tell my docs, I want you to be able to commit at least one full day a week to your practice, ideally two days. So if we can have one to two days a week for our first year, that's going to give you plenty of time to work as an associate somewhere else. And, you know, when we look at the money that the practice is going to make in that first year, whether we're pedo or we're ortho, we should be making enough just to cover the costs of the practice, but not enough to pay you. So, you know, I always tell my docs, you need to plan on being an associate for probably, you know, two years at most, where you should be able to start walking away from that associateship year three, where the practice, then you're more full-time in your own practice, unless you just have got a really great gig with, you know, an associateship job and that's helping pay off your debt or whatnot. And you're like, I can manage this really (laughs) no problem.
0: (laughs) What days, right? I just know, like as a mom, right? Like I've got like, are there days that are better or are they like, Hey, because you want to hit the school hours, like, is there a days or hours that you typically say, Hey, that for most people for an ortho or pediatric practice, like you want to try to hit this day and this day, or is it, you know, super unique to each practice?
1: I think to some extent, it's unique to each practice in the sense that, you know, there could be early release days, you know, in different areas, you know, so you're never going to be like, Oh, well, because in this area, it was an early release on a Wednesday. That means that my practice out here in California is good needs to be open on a Wednesday, I kind of try and follow if we can be open on a Monday, I think Mondays are great, because what usually happens on Mondays, if we have a big child population, school is usually off on Mondays for different holidays, different things like that. So I think if we can be open on a Monday, I think that's great. I try and tell my docs if we can try not have two days in a row. So have like a Monday and a Wednesday if you can. And if your associateship job would allow you to do like a Monday, Wednesday, and then the next week you could do a Tuesday, Thursday, perfect, right? We kind of hit all of the days of the week within a two week rotation. That's ideal. But do our associate jobs usually allow for that? Probably not. So then I would say, you know, if you can just try and at least don't have back to back days and try and think about, okay, if I can't have like the ideal day of the week, you know, like a Monday, or I'm just using Monday as an example, then what? else are my clients looking for? So maybe they're looking for extended evening hours. So maybe I'm going to say, hey, I'm going to start my day at 11 and I'm going to work through seven. So at least I'm hitting, if I can't have more perfect times of the, of the week um, while I'm there, maybe I can have some extended times that work better for my patients and what they're looking for. Saturdays, in my opinion, are a hit and miss day. They could be a really wonderful day, but if you ever want to get rid of Saturdays, that's difficult. If, if you get to a point where you're patients like Saturdays. So especially for my orthodontic offices, I'm always telling them if we are going to work a Saturday, ideally try and have that be a production day. Only new patients, only new starts. Put your all of your adjustments and everything else into what other day of the week you're working. So if and when you ever want to pull away from a Saturday, you know, as you get busier, and you're transitioning your days, nobody is used to coming in on Saturdays. So there's definitely there's a lot of thought that goes into which days are better than others. But hopefully that gives you a little bit of a a lead in. (laughs) Absolutely, you know, because
0: I always think that like if we if we're just trying to kind of build and we expand our hours or like you said, go Saturdays, like what if you don't want to do that forever, right? Like I imagine that is kind of hard to pull back on. So kind of being thoughtful and thinking ahead, but also balancing like needing to get butts and chairs, like is probably that's where you come in. Okay, so let's shift to sellers. I wanna make sure we give them a little bit of time here today as well. What is your role for those sellers, right? So you're probably not coming in when they're like, Hey, I wanted to sell yesterday, right? Like like, so where is that sweet spot for you and your team to come in for maybe a seller listener who's saying like, Hey, I might have a transition need in the next coming years.
1: Yeah. So I try and I've kind of coined it as eight years to retirement. So I think when a doctor is starting to think, I think I'm going to be getting ready to retire and I, I'm not ready yet, but I, you know, I think I'm ready to start building up. And I know you would agree with this. A lot of times what I find when my docs are getting ready to start thinking about selling, they might be, be kind of in a flat spot in their business. And, you know, one of the things that I'm really trying to work with doctors on is I want to get them moving in an upward direction. So it's almost like you're growing your practice to sell your practice, which almost sounds counterintuitive. But when you're looking at what do you want out of this, if we can get you moving in the right direction, that's really going to help the doctor be able to get what they're looking for and, you know, really help that valuation of the practice. So I like to not ideally not be in a year before you're ready to sell it or two years, I, you know, ideally three years or a little before. Four is better because if we can get, you know, three years of good growth, you know, that that looks great, you know, when we can look back and see that a practice has been moving up versus has been stagnant or dropping down year to year. And now we want to sell. So I kind of think that sweet spot is in that eight to five years of when they're thinking about getting ready. And, you know, when I think about doctors getting ready to sell, we really want to make sure that we've got growth going and we're working on our systems just to make sure that everything is clean. And I can kind of unpack that a little bit, but I, th- I think that answered your question.
0: Absolutely. And I think it's for me, right? I was looking at practices for buyers. If I see just one year prior to evaluation or one year prior to a sale where they kind of had an uptick. I know they probably just worked a little harder, right? That first year, right? Or that last year. But what I think is much more valuable to a buyer is that continued growth, like you're talking about, knowing that there's like sustainable systems and things that have been put in place to help continue that moving forward versus like, I just put a little extra work in to get more collections to then have more profit to kind of boost evaluation. That's helpful. We love that, right? Then we know that it exists and that you can work hard to do that. But like to have something a can step into that kind of is already there and already is working and cleaned up is so, so valuable. So I think you, that's a great, Great opportunity if sellers can be thoughtful enough in advance of time to do that. So, okay, some questions that we get. What should I be thinking about to get my practice ready to sell is probably the number one question that we get. I imagine if you are dealing with this group of people, you get that as well.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, like we just said, seeing growth on the books is good. I think that's definitely something. And I really think it is. And when I'm working with doctors, it's evaluating every Single system that you have in your practice, and saying, How does this hold up to 2021 standards to maybe what standards they were in? You know, they may be great 1990 standards, but they may not work right now. (laughs) And, you know, so it's how do I make this most attractive to who I'm going to be selling it to? And how do I make it ideally easy? for the doctor to allow them to be successful. Because isn't that what we want? Is this really great legacy practice that gets handed off and then just continues to go up and up with a new doctor in there. So some simple things, you know, we go in and look at is, and this sounds really silly, but like I always say, we have to do a status cleanup. I have to know where every patient is in your practice. So let's get in there and, you know, get that cleaned up. How many active patients do we really have? How many patients are really an observation? How Many patients are really in our pending. So, getting in there, we spend a lot of time cleaning up our statuses. Then, you know, I'm just going to hit on a few of them. Really evaluating delinquencies on the books. It's really important to clean up our books. So, look at those delinquencies. And you know, really make sure that we're going in there and getting our old debt off of our books. And I know that's hard sometimes. You know, we could be looking at $75,000. and you know, that's debt from twenty years ago that somebody owed us for records when we used to charge for records. Get it off, get it cleaned up, so that you've got really clean books. So when they're working with a team like yours, you're handing over these really clean books. Everything is very transparent. It's easy for so we're ready to really see good trends on everything. So um, statuses, cleaning up our books, if, if we need to do that. And then, you know, just really evaluating again, all of our systems, you know, in the office and, you know, really taking a look and saying, does this match where our practice is going or what we're doing? And then the last thing, believe it or not, is reputation management. I cannot believe how many practices, you know, they aren't up to date with their websites. They don't do anything socially. They may or may not have a Google business page. And so, So, you know, they've kind of let their marketing slide, like they have their five guys that they play golf with, their gals that they play golf with, and they're set, you know, so it really is thinking about it kind of changing that mindset into, I'm, you know, I'm going to get my practice going in the right direction. So it'll be a really good, healthy practice when I'm ready to sell it. So first I heard someone say, when's
0: the last time you actually just like walked through the front door of your own practice, right? Like walk in the front door, see what patients see, go through the process as they go through it. Again, we're creatures of habit. We go in, we do the same thing. We don't think about the other side of the table and kind of what a patient sees and what a patient does. So I thought that was great. And so it sounds like that's what you're saying is like, go through the entire process from like when the patient walks in the door, what forms are they filling out? Like, what are they doing? Kind of what happens once they go back? What happens once they treatment plan? What happens once they leave? And now your staff's taking all of the pieces and inputting. Second thing is I would say myself and my team, the most frustrating transition from a document gathering and understanding is always orthodontic. Because what's a phase one? What's a phase two? Do you track that? How do you track your new patients? What's observations? Like I will say most, most, right? Some are very good. But for the most part, most orthodontic sellers who come to us don't pay attention to that, have not paid attention, have no idea. We've had clients who have been like, I don't track new patients.
1: I know. (laughs) Yeah. And there's still a lot of docs that are using paper. They've never embraced their operating system. You know, it's definitely like, it's hard, you know, and I always have my transition docs that are like, Jill, I just want three things to work on this year. We're doing baby steps here. You know, I can't do it all but give me like three main things. We work on that. And then maybe the next year, we work on the next. And But it really does help them and their team move along so that when, when we do get to that point, and most of the time, we're not telling the team, hey, we're doing this because Doc's thinking that they're going to retire. We're just in there updating them, getting them up to snuff. And then it just Ultimately, you know, I know what the plan is, but the doctor is just trying to get it so that when they are ready to talk about that, they're set, their ducks are in a row. Now they're primed and ready. Yeah. And what I think is always
0: interesting is like, I know I might be able to see the opportunity in your practice. The buyer might be able to see that opportunity in the practice. We might all be on the same page that we know that what you've created is awesome. But if you can't prove that to a lender yes. also, like lenders are asking these questions to know new patients, they're wanting to know number of starts, then it just puts a kink in a transition that doesn't have to be there. If you had done a little work on the front end. So I love, 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 love love everything (laughs) you're saying. So how long should a ortho or pedo owner plan to stay in the practice post-sale? Ooh, I know that's a big question.
1: Yes, this is such a great question and could be a bit of a pinch to somebody out there hearing me say this. My ideal is that a senior doc not stay in a practice more than six months past transition. And ideally, if I could have my wish, it would be probably no more than two months, actually. And here is the reasoning behind that. So for anybody who is doing, you know, looking at purchasing and then from our senior docs that are thinking about getting out, the team number one will never see the new doctor as the leader as long as the senior doc is in the practice. It doesn't matter that you're paying the paycheck. It doesn't matter that you gave new job descriptions. It doesn't matter that you're leading the team meetings now as long as the senior doctor is in the practice the team will never get on board with where we're going until the senior doc is out secondarily you know i like it where docs can do enough to do a good handoff transition to all the patients as they're moving out but a lot of times it can be really hard to make changes as long as the senior doc is in the practice as well so you know the new doc right or wrong may be wanting to make changes to a schedule changes to This changes to that, and you know we could get pushback. Even though the senior doc isn't doing it intentionally, there could be it in you know. Well, I did that and it never worked, or this you know that that's a bad idea. And so we have to let our new docs, our junior docs that are coming in and taking this we have to empower them and the best way is to let them fly. And I just feel like six months is as long as plenty. Ideally, you know, no more than a rotation if it's an ortho office, no more than a rotation through. So it's about two months, three months max.
0: Yeah. And I think like there's a difference if you're listening and you have a large practice, right? And there has to be, maybe you're waiting on the buyer to kind of be able to handle the capacity. Like there's all of these one-offs where it just is going to be longer and you have yes. to be more thoughtful, you know, because I always say everything trickles down from the top, right? So how you treat that person, how you treat the staff that come to you instead of coming to them. Like there's all of these ways we can talk about how, if you have to stay around longer, you can help transition that role to that new owner. But at the end of the day, you not being there, I agree with you. You not being there is the best way for that young guy to fly or gal to fly. And for staff to start seeing them as the leader. So even if you maybe are working back longer, but and you know maybe you have to be there, lender requirement, whatever. Maybe it's one day a week. Don't just show up the other days. Like be gone. Yes. Be out of yes. the office. I've also found that to be the best way for a young doc to like up their production too, right? Like if I, if you're not there, then I don't have a safety net and I have to do it. I operate a little than when, you know, my safety net is still hanging around there. So that's awesome. That is great. But I know it's hard for sellers to hear sometimes, like they want to be there and they want to mentor and they just want to hang around as long as possible. I think it makes it a little bit harder on everyone. It's like mom is home when the babysitter's there. That just, mom's still mom when the babysitter's there.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And, and honestly, if, if we've really have that propensity to want to coach, do it as a mentoring session outside of the office, you know, and make it a mentoring session versus in the office, because it's exactly what you said, as long as they're in the office, it's just, it's it's going to be really difficult for that doc to be able to just embrace it. It's scary. It's hard. You know, it was hard for everybody, right? But it's it's just better to kind of get them launched and going. Awesome. Well,
0: man, this was so much fun. You are a wealth of knowledge and <laughs> I'm so excited that we were able to connect and yes. you just see me live from my home bedroom here. You have so many programs. You have a great team behind you. If someone is listening, whether buyer or seller and says, hey, you know, that might be something that I might need. How do they get in touch with you and where do they go to get more information?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So probably the best thing to do is I always say, check me out, uh, social lurk me, uh, get out there. And I've got Facebook, I've got Instagram, but probably the best place is just jumping onto my website, which is www.com practice results with an s.com and if you go to talk to jill throughout the website there they can just schedule a free consultation with me all my consultations are zoom meetings i love to ideally have a camera on and talk to you and just find out what your needs are i think that's the easiest everybody's in a different situation but i feel like that that's the easiest way to get a hold of me and then to just start a conversation i'm definitely not a uh, Super pushy, you know. I feel like you know I'm, I'm not a cookie cutter consultant. You know, everybody's got their own thing going on in their practice, and sometimes we just need to talk for a while until we really figure out what, if anything, needs to happen. So, best way website.
0: Awesome. And I'm gonna put that in the in the show notes. So when you're listening, just click on there. You can click there. I know that's why we love you. We love working with people who are educational first and foremost. And also just like, hey, let me figure out what you want and what you need. And if I'm a great fit, then I will tell you that. And if I'm not, I'll tell you that too. And I love absolutely that. love, love, love that about you. And so thank you so much for joining us. I feel like we could talk for another uh forty five minutes about all <laughs> all of these topics, but we'll end it here. Appreciate you very much. And thank you for joining us today.
1: Yes. Well, and thank you. Thank you for having me on on the show. And, And I agree. It was just a pleasure being able to speak with you about this. And I know that we both are very passionate about this part of the industry for sure. So again, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks. All right, team. That's all we have for today. Thanks again to Jill Allen
0: for joining us. She's got a fantastic program, and we're always happy to share those educational resources with you guys. As always, listen to us, subscribe, wherever you get your podcasts and like us on social media. Hope you guys have a great day. Talk soon.